Hi, this is Mike. And this is Sean. Welcome to The Cooling Tower, our straight talk podcast where we explore all things atomic. Inside The Cooling Tower, we interview atoms and deep dive into interesting topics and perspectives that are worth sharing. Sean and I have our guest, Mike Walmer, in The Cooling Tower today. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be on the show. So Mike is a software consultant and developer at Atomic. He's been with Atomic since the middle of 2013. We talked a little bit to Mike before the show, and outside of Atomic, Mike likes baking sourdough bread, making homemade tamales, vacationing with family, and playing with his two German short-haired pointers. Before we get into the show, Mike, I, what are German short-haired pointers? Is that a particular dog breed? Yeah, um, it's just a, yeah, it's a short-haired hunting dog, I guess. I don't hunt, but uh, the only thing they hunt is balls and frisbees, so. Hmm, nice. But they're a really loyal breed of dog. They want to be on my lap and next to me all the time, so I don't have to worry about them, like, running off or anything like that, so. Have you always had this breed of dog? Yeah, we've, this is our, like, third one so far, and we enjoy it. Cool. Cool. Well, today we're going to discuss the topic of blogging. So at Atomic, we have a very active blog and an expectation that our Adam's right for the blog. Yeah, blogging is vital part of our marketing success. We don't have an outbound sales model. So we don't have sales people that are out beating the streets or working a network of relationships to bring in new leads. Our clients come to us. Uh, One of the ways they find us, uh, inbound channel, is through organic search, oftentimes using something like Google. Publishing lots of high-quality content to the web helps Google like us. That brings us positive traffic and inbound leads. So today we're going to talk to Mike about some effective blogging that he's done. We're also going to spend some time discussing the history of blogging at Atomic and how he became a company obsessed with blogging. So, So Mike, I want to start by giving you some kudos your blogging record is extremely impressive. So to give to give our listeners some context, you've written roughly around 45 posts at Atomic. Those posts cumulatively have seen just about 1.4 million all-time page views with an average time on site of just over five minutes for each of those posts. So you're not only getting these hits, but people are reading your work. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of hard to think about it. My family puts... Uh, kind of puts me down a little bit every time I mention like, oh, hey, you know, like this many people have been watching my blog posts and they're like, oh, dad, you're not that, you're not that great. So <laughs> I was just like, oh, I think it's really cool. I mean, every time I'm looking at the radiator in the office, I'll, I'll usually see one of your posts. And just to kind of put your 1.4 million views into some context, Sean and I both, le- both have, you know, roughly 50 spin posts and, and roughly about 100,000 views each. And our average page time is like four to 4.5 minutes. So your post compared to ours, you know, 100,000 to 1.4 million with a better page on time, with a better page, you know, a time on page. So and you guys had a head start on me too. We did. We're about, we're, we're, we're a couple posts ahead of you. That's true. So you rub it in a little bit. Um, so how is this possible? Like, do you have like some strategy going into this? I'd love to unbundle this a little more. Uh. Yeah, I guess I have a strategy. First of all, like it's it's not a strategy for everyone. I would classify like blog posts in kind of like two categories. Uh, one would be like a, just a general topic of software, maybe talking about agile or project management or consulting or something like that. Those are not the, the posts that I typically write. 
I write posts that show somebody how to do something or how to solve a problem. I usually don't write about, you know, improving soft skills or that kind of stuff. So um, those are the type of blog posts I like to write, but I'm not, I'm not saying like that is the reason why I've had a lot of hits. So that's one thing. Uh, I write those type of posts. The other one is if I have a hard time, like while I'm working for a client, if I have a hard time finding the solution to a problem, then other people are going to have the same problem. So I write a blog post about it so that it makes it easier for other people to find that solution. That's interesting. Um, so are you are you kind of always like keeping a like a journal on the side yeah. as you're working through your projects? Yeah, or? that's that's one of my my uh, advice that I give to new people starting out with blogging is always I always have a note that I in my notebook a little page that I keep that has a list of blog ideas, and it's important to keep that because thirty days will go by. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, what was that idea I had? I knew I had something that I was going to blog about, but I don't remember what it was. So whenever an idea like that or whenever you're struggling to find a problem and you reach that aha moment, it's like, oh, yeah, I figured it out. This is you know, this is a solution. Write those aha moments down on a, in a notebook and that will give you some blog ideas of what you could write about. The other thing, too, is I think I was a bit lucky with some of my blog posts, uh, not to say like I'm some great writer or anything, like because I don't think I am. But I think I got a little bit lucky because I was blogging about a technology that was relatively new. A lot of my uh, blog posts that have a lot of hits were from 2014, 2015, when um, Auto Layout just came out for iOS development. So it was new to everybody. And the problems that I was facing were the same problems that everybody else was facing, other, you know, only that I was blogging about it. And then shortly after Auto Layout came out, Swift came out. So then there was a whole nother series of topics that I was able to write about. So are you always looking to kind of keep your 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 posts on the edge of where the technology is? I think if you want, if you're going for like maximum hits, then yeah, you want to be relevant. You want to be, you want to hit topics that people are searching for. If I was to write about Ruby on Rails right now, like, oh my good Lord, there's so many blog posts out there about that technology because it's already probably reached its peak and tons of people have figured out all the problems for it. And me writing a blog post today about something probably wouldn't be that exciting or not that many people would be searching for it. But if you want to catch a wide audience, then try and be on the leading edge of a technology curve and, and write about it. The other thing that helped me immensely, especially with, I think, my most popular post is enough people caught it on a Google search that they actually posted a link to my blog as an answer to like a Stack Overflow question. So if somebody was saying, look, I don't know how to do this, and someone would be like, oh, well, you know, this is how you do it in, in a real you know, short form. But if you want more detail, go to this blog post. You did a good job of explaining it. Interesting. So like that triggered a bunch of hits uh, on my blog post, just, you know, posting it on Stack Overflow and stuff like that. So you posted it on Stack Overflow? I did and somebody else did. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, Elaine, our marketing person here at Atomic, she did an experiment at one point. You should ask her some questions about. She did an experiment with like, you know, does it increase our traffic if we purposely try to seek out questions on Stack Overflow that our blog post could, could answer? Interesting. The other strategy that I have is I tend to write blog series. So all of my top posts that I have right now have all been a part of a series. And I've done one on like a, my Swift tool belt, the, the tools that I take me with on every job. 
uh, UI stack views, container views, unwind segues. I did several posts on all of those subjects, and I had links, you know, cross links back and forth to all of those posts. So if a Google search happened to land somebody on one of my pages, if that topic interested them or they were having other issues, right there were my other two posts on the same subject. But those are more difficult to write. I do like that strategy though, Mike. I've employed it myself sometimes because I found when you when you get into something complex or showing people like a, a how-to thing, it's like, where do you start and stop the post? Yeah. How do you how do you make it a lightweight, consumable, targeted thing? And I think it, it helps when someone just lands on the page. And I, I don't know if you do this when you read, but I kind of do a little pre-scroll to mm-hmm. see. Or I mean, some blogs will say this is probably a five-minute read, a fifteen-minute read, whatever. But like, it looks highly consumable. And the, but then people can move into those adjacent spaces where you might provide more comprehensive help. And and then I find too, from the writing perspective, I can fulfill my obligation to blog and push out some interesting relative content, but it, it helps me um, have that next idea. Because mm-hmm. I think like, where could I take this next? Or what's the adjacent space from my, my, my current idea that I'm writing about? So it helps me, I too, like you, keep that idea list yeah. active. And it's like, ooh, is this so big? It's like a part one, two, and three. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. The trick is each blog post in a series should stand on its own. It shouldn't end with like a cliffhanger, like, <laughs> let's find out next week what's going to happen to our Cape Crusader, you know? Yeah. I might have watched a bit too much Adam West when I was a kid. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> I, I did too. But yeah, I mean, they, they should all stand on their own. They, they should be, you know, good blog posts that are written on a particular topic. And then like if there's another thing that, that ties into it or is in the same subject, you can like pass people on to that, yeah. the next subject. So... When you're writing a post, do you have like an idea about how long this is going to take me when I go into it? Generally, most of my posts have code, either through samples or whatnot. I generally write that first and then write the post itself. So depending on how how long that takes me, I, I kind of have some idea of like, how long is this going to take? Like how many screenshots am I going to get? You know, I have to take, I'm going to have to record some GIFs or something like that. So is your formula pretty much, okay, first of all, I encounter a problem that, that I'm currently solving. And then next I extract some sample code, either based on how I solved it or, or some new code. Mm-hmm. And, and then you're coming up with, with writing the, the content around that. Yeah, that's usually the the strategy. I actually created a standalone like project that someone could like download themselves usually and run um, because sometimes uh, just having code on the page doesn't help. Some people still have questions that maybe you didn't think of and didn't explain well enough. So it's nice to have like a small, really small, tiny project. That, Interesting that they can just like download this and, and see if it works. That's not always the case, but a lot of times I, I'll do that. That's an interesting strategy. So uh, of all the posts you've written, what's been your favorite? Probably the one that uh, is my most popular one. It's using UI scroll views with auto layout. I remember when I wrote that blog post, I really struggled because there wasn't a lot of content out there. It's like UI scroll view has been around since like the very first version of iOS. Like that is an old control. And basically... Auto layout was this new thing. And everybody knew how to use the scroll view in the classic way. 
of like, oh, we got to add up all your content and, and tell the scroll view what your content size is and do all this kind of like manual like countings. But there is this new thing called auto layout, which is just supposed to lay out your controls and supposed to figure out like how big and how tall and everything should be. And basically you're trying to marry this old control with this new method. Mm-hmm. And I remember like reading this document from Apple. It was just a horrible piece of documentation on, on the on on the UI scroll view. And just like buried in this paragraph was the key to figuring it out. And it was like an aha moment. It's like, oh, I really got to blog about this. That's the one that got posted on a bunch of Stack Overflow. And a lot of people liked that. I even had a nice graphic on that post where people, you could, you know, visually see like what was going on. I think I see that post show up almost daily on our uh, chart chart beat widget still. Yeah. <laughs> Every so often I see that title. It's like, <laughs> oh, there's people still on Mike's post. Yeah. It's always a reminder to me of uh, your effective blocking. <laughs> yeah. Th- that post is still relevant. I updated it a few years ago, but I think it's lost a bit of Google food since it was originally wrote it in like 2014. And I think just the Google search results itself tend to like tail off after a while. Do you do that commonly is up, go back and update old posts? I don't do that commonly. If I get a lot of comments on a post, especially that one, it, for a while there, I was getting a, one a day or two a day. And somebody be like, oh, hey, it doesn't work for the latest Xcode version or whatever. And I'd go back and I'd update it. But there was one point where there was a lot of changes that I needed to make to the post. So, uh, you know, I worked with Lisa and we completely updated it for the, the latest tools. But maintenance of old blog posts is kind of like a thing that I'm still struggling with. I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah, because it's hard to know, right? Like, I mean, you move on, right? Yeah. And the post is kind of in the past. And especially if you're leaving live code there. Right, right, exactly. So I know that you uh, um, have commonly given advice to a lot of new atoms that are that are that are coming to Atomic and the Ann Arbor office, you know, who might be trying to figure out how do I write good blog content? Like, what are some of the tools and tricks you share with them? So keep a list of ideas. We've already t- talked about that. I would say don't worry if someone has already written a blog post on the same subject. Maybe their post is old or their solution is slightly different than yours. Or you had to piece together like a few pieces of information from different blog posts to figure out the solution that you're looking for. You know, don't worry so much. Like, I think a lot of new people are like, oh, somebody's already written about this. I can't, I can't, you know, do my own. So I would say just, just don't worry about that. Just write, just Uh get it out there and write. Another problem might be someone might be having problems like finding their voice. Like, uh, what is my blog post going to sound like? Or how am I going to write it? What am I going to say? I try to imagine someone sitting down next to me and I have to write and tell them how to solve the problem. That's usually easier for me in my head to to say, you know, how should I structure the post? Like if I'm having a really hard time, I I tend to write in like a tutorial style, like step A, do this. And then step B, do that. I usually try to introduce the problem first before I try to solve it. So like, here's what our problem, here's what the problem is, is how you solve it. Step, go to step A, do this, do this. I find that easy uh, style to write uh, if I'm struggling with, you know, what to put on the page. And the final piece of advice is write about topics that interest you. Um, Otherwise, it's just going to feel like a chore. 
Yeah, that's good advice. Of all the posts that Atomics put out, I'm going to take the Mike Walmer post off the table. Like, what? What's your favorite post? I actually got two. Okay. And we talked. I talked earlier about that there's two styles of posts. One is kind of like general programming topics. My favorite one in that category is a post that was written by Ken Fox, and it's entitled "Visualizing Garbage Collection Algorithms." I remember that one. Like he did did a great job of like. And did animated GIFs of all the different like algorithms for like all the garbage collection. And it's just a great post. And this is a post that no one's really going to be Googling for this. You know, no one's going to be like finding this in a search. But this is a great blog post that just absolutely blew up when it got posted on Hacker News. Because that's that's just great content for that type of for that type of medium. Yeah, I feel like it was perfect for like a CS class. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that type of post. The other one that I that I like is more along my style, which is you still see this today walking by our blog radiator, which is how to create a responsive square with CSS. It was written by Bobby Kilpatrick. And it basically, the structure of the post is pretty much exactly the formula I follow. He has the problem as a little animated GIF of, of what the problem was, and then, you know, with the code of how to solve the problem and some, just some great content for the style of posts that I typically write. Yeah, it's really cool. Mike's actually showing us on his laptop uh, Bobby's post, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to see um, the, the clever use of, of the animated GIF so that, you know, I think a reader who's looking to solve this problem not only actually doesn't have to put forth that much effort to read, to right. find out, like, is this the same problem I'm solving? Okay, it is. I'm going to dig in. Yeah. And it's interesting. It you know, keeps you uh, keeps the user engaged on the page. So it's a nice one. Great. Well, I want to I pivot this talk a little bit and, uh, and, and shift it over to the, to the history of blogging at Atomic. So how did we determine, Sean, that, that makers should blog at Atomic? Ooh, it's a, it's a great question. I, I don't know that I can answer to a particular defining moment of making that determination, but I can share some steps along the way. I think um, when you look at Atomic's teach and learn value mantra, you know, I've been with Atomic since 2004, and that was always very alive within the culture. Carl Erickson, our founder, he came out of GVSU as a CS professor. And what really attracted me to the company already was the professional development aspects of the company. I remember one of the days I was coming in for a job interview, Micah, Alice, and a group of other young Adams at the time were headed out to O'Reilly's open source convention in Portland, Oregon. And I was really surprised of like, wow, you're getting paid to go to this week-long conference. Um, you know, part of that teach and learn value mantra in 04, as early as 2004, started with the idea that we should be also um, externally teaching. And we've done that over time through talks and presentations. We've done it through with white papers, but it became clear too that blogging was a thing. In 04, you know, there was a lot of companies where they were turning to blogging. We thought that this would be a, a thing that we should participate in. And Carl, um, you know, there was another individual, Mike Karleski, who was in the company at the time. Carl and Fox also had a voice in saying this was a good thing to do. And between 2004 and in 2005, 
we started uh, Atomics Blog. I'll show you guys, uh, and if anyone, any of our listeners would like this, I can pull some of this data. I'm looking at the visualization at the raw data table, but if you look, like in 04 to 05, I mean, we're probably looking at under 10 posts a year would come <laughs> on our blog, right? And uh, and people kind of kicked the tires at blogging, and we uh, moved along in that route, you know, pretty much for 05, 06, 07, all, let's let's fast forward to, to 2010. In 2010, you know, I think one of the things that I've always admired about Carl is he he can see the the future be, before things go mainstream. And in 2010, Carl got really serious about blogging, and what he was onto is what we all now know now as a content based strategy. You know, this teach and learn value mantra, marketing in general, the whole marketing world has picked up on this. If you help people, if you take that giver strategy, you're going to get more in return. We got really serious and we had about 27 people in the company at that time. And we said, we are going to continue with this slow, odd, you know, handful of posts any any given uh, year. We're, we're going to go that way unless we require everybody participates. And we're going to take an approach, which we, we hit by 2011, that we're doing a piece of content a day. And if you look at that growth, like 20... 2010 is this inflection point year where we were probably somewhere around 140 posts. And by that following year in 2011, we're doing a piece of new content almost every day, which we've maintained. And what we've seen is the company's grown. You get more days in between the posts as far as meeting meeting our, our obligation to all be living that teach and learn value mantra. That's cool. So I was I was also around during that time. So I'll kind of I'll kind of tee you up here, Sean. Right? Sure, sure. I, yeah, I, I'm sure it was really easy to take a, a company that was mo- mostly an engineering type culture at the time, mm-hmm. 2010, 2011, and say, you know what, everybody, we're going to start blogging and we're going to put out a piece of content every day. Can you describe a little bit like what that journey was like? What were some of the reservations? I just want to heat the cooling tower sure. up Sure. So bit. laughingly, I reflect on this time period in my professional experience is learning about change initiatives and change management through living it uh, and not realizing you're in it. Uh, but then when you're, when you're halfway through kind of zooming out and saying, oh, this is, this is change. It's fine. I would describe it as the hardest piece of change management that Atomic has ever gone through. I agree. I agree. We were a very engineering centric company, despite the teach and learn value mantra. I mean, this was pre uh, user experience integration into our culture. And it was like the, the biggest piece of value is shipping working code. And people's passion was on writing code and doing pet projects. I remember hearing sentiments at the time is like, if people want to write about the cool code we do, we could hire journalists to watch us and write what we do. But like, you know, I don't want to slow down and like write what I'm doing. I just want to keep working on what I'm passionate about. And it's funny because I think to this day, we we don't say this as much as we used to. And we were saying it around this time is that really good consultants, like that are the the single person consultants or you know, the, uh, the two to three partners who run a really small consultancy, they're always the ones that are down at conferences. They'd be at Agile Comp or Strain, uh, not Strange Loop at the time, like uh, O'Reilly's Open Source Convention. And you still see this at conferences today, like Strange Loop is there's these thought leaders, right? And they need to do this. this they're doing more of a thought leadership play 
in, in, in sometimes in conjunction a content management play to bring in leads. And what we were saying is, look, like is a, is a consultancy, we really are just a larger team of consultants. And it is beneficial to us to all act like those consultants that are part of a, a much smaller shop. What we have, what we really benefit from by being larger is much more flexibility of scheduling, starting, stopping projects, a variety of assignments, et cetera. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be giving back to the world what we learn. And also by giving back, we also get that inbound marketing traffic. You know, we're quantitative folks at that time, I think people really weren't connecting the dots between that think long-term value mantra, which hadn't been established yet. So realizing that doing a piece of content a day is a long-term content strategy that's a leading metric for future success, but it's not like that sales lead is going to pour in the door five days after you wrote that amazing blog post. It's a long-term strategy. We measure it today, our marketing team you know, Lisa and Elaine and, and Lena's joining us here uh, next week. We do have rigorous reporting that shows on our inbound channels of the amount of sales requests and uh, the legit sales requests and the, and the demand um, hours. We measure how much per, uh, demand. Again, I can show this data to some of our listeners. You guys can see this MOV data in these graphing reports. That's the, the quantity of inbound demand. It comes through. That is the, the channel of online organic search. And we believe that the spin content directly juices our numbers to give us like high trust, high relevance for inbound search. Yeah, the idea there is the the people that we're writing the posts for aren't necessarily our clients, but but they'll come and visit the posts. They'll get a lot of value out of it. Google will detect this. Google will see us as uh, an authoritative source. And then when someone does come looking for our services, hey, I'm looking for software development and design in Ann Arbor. Oh, yes. atomic object. Yes. And then you can see here too, the demand, the hours of demand that that generates through the, the uh, organic search is huge too. And if you don't mind, I'm going to extend my response to a, answer a question you didn't really ask, but like beyond connecting the dots to an inbound lead, I think what uh, people had a hard time visualizing back then is the, the, the treasure chest of content it allows our sales team and managing partners to access when we're closing a sale. I've seen this before when people are like, oh, do you have experience with Ember? Be like, oh, sure, let me do a follow-up. We were really early into Ember. Here's seven different links that span multiple years. From multiple authors. From multiple authors. You can't fake that. Like that, I mean, it just shows how bona fide we are and how committed we are to sharing that content. And so in the, in, in the sales differentiation, even as other companies may offer services similar to ours or use agile methods similar to ours or a blending design and dev similar to us, when people are in the sales stage and they're looking for a differentiating factor, we can sometimes differentiate by how fast we hustle, but we can also differentiate through a bona fide showing of our longevity of thought leadership and expertise in that giver strategy. It's really impressive. Yeah, I think um, anybody can go out to Squarespace and create like a website that, you know, for any software shop. And the difference is, is even though the blog is a static page, it shows that the company's alive. Yes. There are people behind it that are actively working and there's a lot of smart people answering a lot of good questions and just a static page, you know, atomicobject.com is just, it's not going to do that. 
Yeah, and to, to further your point, Mike, what some of the things we were looking at the early days in the like oh, you know, oh five when we weren't pushing out many posts, some of the advice is unless you're going to really be active, don't even put it out there because it sh- it can make people wonder like, ooh, like did, are they shrinking? Like no one's pushing content out. <laughs> Do they still have a team? I think too to echo some of Mike's earlier comments, um, you, you know, on like advice for getting over the hump of blogging. Some of those headwinds we faced when we were getting everyone to blog. People have different, you know, they might be intrinsically motivated to write. Maybe they're not. So it's connecting the dots on how does this help us stay relevant long term. Some people also have varying degrees of confidence and ability to write. And I look at that not as a problem, but as an opportunity to help people to become better writers. And even going through the editorial review uh, with our marketing team, that helps people become better writers. There is a fear of getting trolled or having people leave nasty comments or what, what if my insight that I think is an insight gets ridiculed. And occasionally we've had people feel a little bruised or, you know, mild to moderate trolling on posts. And, but I found culturally how we respond is we all rally behind our team and pick each other up and in practice there's people are smart we are smart we're publishing good content and trolls are going to be trolls yeah i'm glad i'm glad you hit on some of those things because i i remember some of those those same challenges when when carl really spearheaded this push towards we are going to be a marketing-led organization and we are going to lead you know primarily through through the blog and through content strategy and I remember some of those initial fears, like really coming down to, well, in order for me to put content out there, it needs to be like white paper worthy or yes. like really peer reviewed or really exceptional. And I think the reality of it yeah, is like an academic journal. with yeah. all. Yeah. And, and, and we've done some posts like that and they've done really, really well. Right. Yeah. We've done other posts like that. And meh. and, you know, we've done other posts, you know, the top five Linux tools. A bazillion hits, yeah. right? I mean, you have absolutely no idea which blog posts are going to be a hit. So you might think, oh, I need to put like all this effort into this blog post because I really, really want it to be successful. And it's just a dud. And something else you wrote on some other topic that people are interested in all of a sudden gets a lot of hit. Now, I remember another common fear we had at the time was that we were almost going to flood the channel. We were going to put too much noise out there, which in hindsight is kind of a funny thing. Like we're, we're going to put too much content into the internet, exactly. right? <laughs> we, might clog, we might clog it. We might get full. <laughs> but we, we have come a long way there and it's been a big journey. And I think uh, it's a really amazing asset that we have in, in a world where it's, it's, it's pretty easy to create a, a consultancy, right? Like you need a couple smart people, some, some computers, right? There's not a whole lot of capital costs to what we do. Mm-hmm. This is a very powerful like barrier to entry and a very powerful tool that Atomic's able to leverage. Yeah, before I worked at Atomic, I worked at a consultancy very similar. And we didn't we had a blog, but only a couple of people wrote on it. And, it. and we had like a team of salespeople that had to go out and knock on doors and like send a tons of emails to try and get leads for projects. And, and part of the problem was, is those salespeople wanted to work on commission. And we don't always take every project that comes in the door. We, we have the luxury of being a little bit selective. So that was a hard thing for the salesman to like deal with is like, you know, what do you mean you're not going to do this really old technology project that I found in the cellar? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a really great point you bring up, Mike. And it reminds me, it's funny the as we went through the change initiative and we spoke about the motivational whys, 
sometimes I realize we do lose sight of these things because it just becomes the new norm. And what I always thought of is through this blog, we attract the work we want. It allows every individual in the company, you don't have to get inspired from the project you're on. It could be the project you want to be on. It can be in the industry you want to get and attract work from. It can be in the tool set you want. And oftentimes, a lot of where we move to the tool sets we want, I mean, yeah, there's probably some significant general movement in the you know, technology anyhow, but we can pick where we want to be right about it. That attracts the inbound traffic. And then we show the expertise we've already built up in house. That's a really cool thing. Instead of the disembodied sales team walking Mm -hmm. around looking to, to sell the thing where they get the biggest, uh, you know, variable based comp spiff from not a good structure. Yeah. I want to ask a follow-up question on that with, with respect to, to the investment side of it, right? Mm-hmm. Because because you have a couple strategies as a firm like ours, right? Are you are you sales led or are you marketing led? And, and obviously, Atomic has has fallen more on this marketing led led side of things. We don't sure. we don't have people knocking on doors. We have warm leads coming to us, and we're figuring out are we good fit to help, right? Yeah. So, but it's not that like creating our content on spin is without cost, right? No, I mean, I think I think last year we spent roughly a thousand hours on spin content. So like my, my question is, is it worth it? Hmm. That's a great question. And it's, you know, it's somewhat of a foggy question to answer. Is it worth it? But I'll take a crack at, at speaking around the space. The one thing that I, that I want to point out is we do invest a lot. And I've, I've heard from firms like us, here, here's a story, a counterexample is someone had come to me and um, I think it might've been Mike Sweeten. And we were talking about this and, he had said, yeah, like, you know, in this, this consultancy, everyone was like a flat salary. So if you were asked to blog above and beyond, you didn't make any additional compensation for doing it because you were flat salary. But then like at the end of the month, whoever got the most traffic got a really nice bottle of whiskey. And we we're talking about, oh, that that's kind of interesting. It makes it like a competition and the whiskey is a lot. And we're, you know, Mike brought up is like a really nice bottle. Not really, really nice, like, you know, $2,000 nice, but like $100 nice, right? That's a nice bottle of whiskey. Yeah, it's a decent bottle of whiskey. What happened to that incentive? <laughs> so, so we did. The conversation went. Ten we, years. We, we zoomed out. And I said, so let's think about it. They're trying to get their whole team, and and they weren't making blogging a thing, part of the job, basic expectation of the job, right? So they're trying to lure people in through the $100 bottle of whiskey. And I said, so what they did as an organization is they said, we're willing to invest $100 a month in a content-based marketing strategy. What are we doing by paying people for every hour that they write content for spin? How does, what does that convey about our conviction that this is the right investment strategy because it is significant. But then to back into a wow, like, are we over-investing? Is it worth it? I think you can talk to the other side of that and get to your point, Mike, like, you know, do you want to pay some super comped salesperson? I I talk to other consultancies that struggle to sell or um, land pure technology salespeople because they can go out and sell product where you can sell infinite amounts of licenses and they want all these variable based comp incentives and rake in hundreds of K to be the, you know, flying around North America selling software licenses. And then you bring them into consultancies, there's a limited amount of capacity to sell. And so sometimes they want to get rid of that variable piece and still be like really, really highly comped. 
I think the the content-based strategy is um, one, less risky because your whole team is doing it. What we're doing, the whole team is doing it. It's not on one super salesperson with a super network or whatever. And I think it, it scales better and it's uh, more cost-effective. I was reading recently in Hinge's uh, professional services marketing book where they were saying they recommend usually a 40 to 60% blend of some traditional sales techniques or other marketing techniques in addition to a content-based strategy. And the firms, they have data that firms that do the content-based strategy can grow faster as a company and they can stay more profitable because they don't have this heavy load of a, of a highly comp sales force. And again, like what I spoke to earlier, we also get the win because we're writing about what we're passionate about. We're writing about what we want to do. Yeah. Otherwise, the salesman has to go around and say, what technology are you interested in now? Oh, I'll go find a you know a lead for that. Yeah. Right? That doesn't happen. Right. So the, the reverse happens. I write about the stuff that interests me. And by chance, like somebody who has that need comes to us because, oh, these guys are smart people. Yes. Yes. So I look at it, you know, when you look at the comparisons of what do, what do people do for strategies that don't really show a commitment, I think we're making the right level of commitment. And then you can contrast that against like, you could bring leads in in other ways. I think those are more expensive and the leads are less quality. Yeah, I would agree. Well, I want to thank you, Mike, for joining us inside the Cooling Tower today, sharing your wisdom on blogging. It's been fun. Yeah. It's good to have you, Mike. Big thanks to the audience for listening and have a good one.